Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. As Tim mentioned, uh, we are on a series uh, called Jesus is Better, and uh, we'll get into that in just a bit, but I have some uh, updates and uh, announcements for you. Um, Woo, it's a, it's a good one. You want to you wanna listen to this one. Uh, folks, uh, we've been, uh, you know, gathering together in a manner like this for the last few months. Uh, we have been doing two services. Uh, and so uh, this is something uh, that historically we've not done as a church. And so, uh, you know, in light of uh, the restrictions and the limited capacity, uh, it was on the heart of the leadership to multiply the services. And uh, no doubt it's quite a stretch. You know, all volunteers had to kind of step up and to take on more. And it's been challenging, uh, yet rewarding all at the same time. And I'm sure all of you know that there have been some adjustments to the measures uh, for our nation and also impacts our religious organizations like ours. And so uh, the team uh, took it back and, uh, with our, our leadership and kind of discussed uh, what would be the way forward for our church. And I'm uh, happy to announce that uh, starting from next Sunday onwards, we'll be reverting back to just one service on Sunday. Uh, one service on Sunday at 10 a.m. And this is met by loud cheers because uh, the people are clapping are all volunteers and they're like, uh, this two-service thing, too much, too much, fatigue, fatigue, uh, and, and all that good stuff. But no, there's, there's so much more behind this decision. Uh, uh, and, it, and of course, you know, we care for our volunteers, our well-being. Hey, calm down. <laughs> so excited, huh? Uh, yeah, but, but I think beyond that, uh, we can look forward to uh, several things. Uh, one, you know, the foyer will be reinstated. Uh, we can have some, you know, mingling. You can catch up with uh, friends and uh, with new people uh, in the hall before and after service. Uh, another thing that you can look forward to is uh, unhurried time together. Uh, and so that would mean that our worship, our time of worship will be longer. We will spend more time lingering in God's presence. Uh, uh, you will have time to respond. Uh, and so it's unhurried. Uh, you know, we can look forward to longer sermons. I just do not believe you. <laughs> Don't worry, sermon time about the same. Huh? Okay. Yeah, I know, I know. Attention span and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, but yeah, all that's to say, looking forward to that next Sunday, 1 service, 10 a.m. And folks, it's going to be like a family reunion. I'm sure there are some people they have not seen in two years. And so you get to be reunited and it feels so good. Yep. And so yes, that's uh, next Sunday. It's a very old song. Well, new song for some of you. Okay, um, as, as Tim mentioned, we are on a series called Jesus is Better, and this is our Lenten series. It's going to lead up all the way to Easter. Uh, Pastor Janice sends her love. Pastor Janice is back home in Saba with family, uh, but she'll be back in time for Easter, and she'll bring you the word on Easter Sunday. Now, the claim that we're making through this series is that the way of Jesus his life, his call, his teachings. In contrast to the way of the world, our culture, what you know, uh, our larger society deem as good, beautiful, right, and true, we're saying that Jesus, his way, his teachings is the better way. And last week, you know, I, I began a kind of a mini series, uh, and I started with a talk on money, uh, on money. And so the, the claim, you know, that we made through the series uh, was really captured in the liturgy that we just prayed. Right, you know that line. I love it. Lord, may I be uh, trustworthy with such a little thing as money that I may be entrusted with true, lasting riches. And the thing we explored last week is that all of our wealth, our finances, all that we've accumulated in this life, whether fiat currency, NFT, Bitcoin, whatever have you, all that we've accumulated in this life. 
we cannot take it into the age that is to come. We came into the world with nothing, and therefore we take nothing out of the world. But generosity, living in God's kingdom, living in His way, offers us this limited window of opportunity in this time on earth to take something that is temporal, fleeting, and fading, and see it translate into something that bears weight and value in eternity. And that's what we get to do when we practice generosity. Now, uh, folks, uh, I've been you know, pastoring this church for a number of years now, and I haven't got as many like uh, looking forward to your message, man, as I have this week. Uh, now, I, I don't want to disappoint you uh, and, and kind of like shatter expectations, but uh, you know, this talk on sex, and I'm not really going into like three tips to like having a better sex life or like three ways you can do better. You know, we're not going to talk too much about that. We're really going to zone in on Jesus' teaching about sexuality, sexual desire. Um, you know, how he has instructed us how to view our bodies and each other. How can we live into the way of God's kingdom and how can we capture a biblically faithful sexual ethic in our world today? Now, I, I do want to kind of preface uh, a whole bunch of stuff before I kind of get into the teaching. Uh, you know, I want to offer a trigger warning. And so there are stuff that I will get into, uh, terms that I might get into, words that I may use that might be triggering to some of you. Uh, I don't know whether the young people are in the room or children, but this may not be a very suitable teaching for you. Uh, if you're new, certainly this is not uh, our staple diet. Uh, huh? This is like once in five years. Uh, but, uh, you know, we'll be talking about subjects that, that kind of delve and involve like stuff like pornography, uh, objectification, sexual assault, uh, some of the words that I may use, you may feel uncomfortable and unsettled uh, because of the context that we are in. Uh, but you know, if any of that kind of sounds unsettling to you and perhaps you, know, you have certain experiences that you know, will be very triggering you know, if you talk like that, I want to offer you the opportunity that when we get into the time of prayer later, uh, you may feel free to, to leave the room, to leave the hall, um, totally understand. Uh, so I just want to offer that uh, to you uh, as well. Now, what complicates uh, delving into this subject in the church is that the church hasn't been all too blameless in the area of sexuality. Uh, just this you know, couple of weeks, you know, we've heard stories of pastors uh, who've been leading global ministries for a number of years uh, engaging in sexual misconduct. And so, you know, this is something that, you know, and we of, of course know that the statistic, that statistically speaking, the church and the larger culture doesn't really differ much in terms of pornography usage, divorce rates, and adultery rates. Uh, it's fairly, you know, similar. And so the church hasn't been all too blameless in this arena, in this area. And no doubt, you know, even as I'm talking about this, uh, there are certain personal experiences that have been really traumatic uh, I believe for some of you, and some of those experiences involve how this topic has been handled in the context of the church. It's been abusive, oppressive, uh, without grace and without mercy and without kindness. And yet, in hearing all that, we are all called as a people of God to hold the word of God together in spite of all that, in spite of abuse, in spite of misrepresentation. We are called to hold to God's scripture together. You know, the Bible isn't just like an archaic piece of literature. It's an ancient library of books, no doubt. But it is God's words to us. It is not just, um, you know, uh, a set of rules or ethics. It is not what some would call basic instructions before living earth. Uh, it is Jesus' vision for a good life, for how we ought to live in the world. It tells us who God is. It tells us who we are. And it gives us a glimpse, a foretaste of God's plan to make the world beautiful again. And here we are today, not to hear what culture has to say about sexuality, not to hear what is popular, palatable, acceptable in wider society, but we're here as the people of God today to be confronted with the words of Scripture, with the words of Jesus, and have Him 
through the Holy Spirit, instruct us to the way that is everlasting. That's what we have to do. And so the base assumption here as we delve into this subject of sexuality is that all of us want to live biblically faithful lives, even in the realm of sexuality. Right? So with all that being said, let us begin with reading a couple of passages of scripture. Are you with me, folks? Bible time! I have this dream of like, you know, I open the Bible and y'all go nuts, but <laughs> dream is dream. Okay, uh, Matthew chapter 5, the reading from the gospel, hear the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Reading also uh, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth from 1 Corinthians 6. This is uh, Paul uh, speaking and, and this is him uh, you know, quoting some of the things he heard uh, in the Corinthian church. It begins like this. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything, you say. For food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Reading also verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the word of the Lord. Today I'll be speaking on a subject, Jesus is better than sexual freedom. Jesus is better than sexual freedom. Now sexual freedom is a term uh, in our culture that's used to define this freedom to self-define, to explore, to experience your own sexuality as you want it. And the claim we're making this morning is that far above society, culture's definition of sexuality, far above our, quote, right to self-define and self-express sexuality, we're saying that the way of Jesus is better. Let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Jesus, this morning as a people, we come to receive from your word. God, we know that this subject has been marred, abused, and carries within a lot of pain and baggage, trauma for some. Lord, we know that this is something that God has been uh, so distorted in our culture. But God, you have so much intent and desire for us to discover the grace, the beauty, and the wonder of sex and sexuality. And God, we pray this day as your created ones, that we would indeed come face to face with our creator, with the one who designed all things, the one who has fashioned us and formed all things. Lord, we receive of your word this day. And God, we pray indeed that it's not 
culture that leads us into truth, nor is it eloquence or research, but it is your Holy Spirit that leads us into all truth. So Spirit of God, we yield to you even in this moment. Come lead us. Come guide us. We invite your presence here. Come, Holy Spirit. For in this place, move upon your heart, our hearts. Enlighten us. Bring illumination to the words of Scripture. We pray for your presence to lead and guide us in this time. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, folks, don't, wouldn't we agree that we live in a society and a culture that is hyper-sexualized? From advertisements to what we see on TV to the elevation of sexuality to a pseudo-God status. My body, my rights, my expression, I can do what I want. How many of you have heard of the saying, the heart wants what it wants? How many of you have heard the saying before? Yeah, some of you in the song. Yeah. <laughs> Don't know who sang the song, but yeah, the heart wants what it wants. While many of us are acquainted with that phrase and that maxim in our culture, many of us don't really understand or know the origin of that saying. The story goes in 1992, Walter Isaacson, this journalist, was interviewing Woody Allen for Time magazine, and the subject of the interview was about Allen's notorious uh, relationship uh, with a girl named Sun E. Previn. The story basically goes like this, uh, Allen, was on an on and off again relationship with a actress and a model named Mia Farrow. And Mia Farrow, before uh, she dated Woody Allen, was married to someone else, and they had adopted a girl from South Korea, then seven-year-old Soon Yi Previn. And years went by, and Farrow and Allen's relationship began to deteriorate. They, became, they, they grew separated, and they, they separated eventually. And one day, uh, Mia Farrow uh, found pictures of Soon Yi on... Ellen's fireplace mantle, and she was in the nude. And that was when they realized that Ellen, who was then 56 year old, years old, had been sleeping together, had had a sexual relationship with Suni, who was now 21. And to clarify, Ellen had been dating Mia, Suni's mom, for some time and was essentially a functional stepdad. Ellen would go on to date and then marry Suni. Now back to the interview, Isaacson uh, you know, calmly and persistently probed Ellen for some kind of regret, apology, or even moral uncertainty. But Alan simply refused to admit that he had done anything wrong. And at the end of the interview, Isaacson asked him, why did you do it? Why did you do this? And Alan paused and then said this iconic line, the heart wants what it wants. Now this off-the-cuff saying has not just infiltrated modern vernacular, it's infiltrated the belief system of our culture. It's a kind of get-out-of-jail-free cut for any behavior that seems to fall outside the lines of moral tradition or what is socially acceptable. We use it all the time, right? From chocolate cake to adultery, the heart wants what it wants. In our culture today, to deny oneself is a kind of repression, and to take up the cross is a kind of heresy. We are taught to never deny ourselves, never deny our wants, never deny our desires to live freely, to self-express. Bill Johnson says this. How many of you expected a Bill Johnson quote in a sex talk? None of you. Uh, Bill Johnson says this. Doesn't talk about sex though. He says this. When we lose the knowledge of the existence of a creator, we lose the concept of design. When we lose the concept of design, we undermine the discovery of purpose. When we undermine the discovery of purpose, we remove the conviction of accountability. When we remove the conviction of accountability, we undermine the fear of God. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Without wisdom and the fear of God, all we are left with is total confusion. And in many ways, that is what we are seeing in our world today. Total confusion. 
as it pertains to sex and sexuality. The Bible says this, that when the people of God lose vision, they cast off restraint. They lack wisdom. They live in a kind of way that is totally confused. If you get this picture of kind of like a horse without a bridle, wild, untamed, uncontrolled, dangerous. This is our culture. Now, there's an article in the New York Times a couple of years ago titled, What Teenagers Are Learning From Online Porn. It talks about a class on porn literacy that is a curriculum rolled out in high schools which is designed to educate high schoolers on how to best consume porn and is designed to reduce sexual and dating violence. Article writes, for around two hours each week for five weeks of students, sophomores, juniors, and seniors take part in porn literacy, which aims to make them savvier, more critical consumers of porn by examining how gender, sexuality, aggression, consent, race, relationships, and body image are portrayed or uh, in the case of consent, not portrayed in porn. Family therapist Joe Manning said this about online pornography. The influence of the internet on sexuality is likely to be so significant that it will be ultimately recognized as the cause of the next sexual revolution. The pervasive power of pornography has made it the primary sexual educator of today's adolescents. Uh, there was this study that I don't have up on screen where uh, they studied a whole bunch of young adults ranging from 18 to 30, and an overwhelming majority of the young men who were part of the study said that the way that they learned about sex, sexuality, how to have sex was from porn videos. Now, if you think that this is a purely Western problem that has not uh, touched the shores of Singapore, consider this one statistic that tracked global porn usage. If you measure the time spent on pornographic websites in any of the 20, 210 countries in the world, Singapore would rank number two. In an article titled, Sex Robots Could Save Your Relationship and More Good News on the Future of Love, the writer proposes a sexual future and experience that promises to go beyond monogamy, binary gender, beyond humans, beyond romance. Sex is then reduced to a functional, biological need, void of the complexities of interpersonal relationships, and get this, it's available on demand. When you want it, when you have a craving, when you have a desire, you can have it, much like Netflix. This is where the world is headed. We are gonna live in complex times, folks. Our view, the, the cultural views and sentiments around sexuality, around how our bodies are to be used, is gonna get more and more complex more and more contrasting, more and more polarizing. Now, what can we do as a people of God in light of what one would term and one would say the next sexual revolution? Think about how pornography is so accessible in our day and age. We have young boys who are literally marinated in this stuff, something unprecedented in a previous age. Now, what can we do? Two things. One, parents, we need to create environments to have open conversations with our children regards to sex and sexuality. We need to create moments of prayer, of discipleship, of fasting, so that we can train our children in the ways of God. Hear me, it's either we do this, or the culture would. It's either we disciple our children, or culture would disciple your kids for you. There's no two ways about it. We live in this kind of contested space. And the other thing that we need to do as a people of God is that we need to go to the Bible God, Holy Spirit, and recapture a biblical vision of what it means to live faithfully sexual in our world today. We need to tether ourselves to a biblical sexual ethic and vision of sex and sexuality. Not a worldly rhetoric, but as God intended for things to be. 
Now, one of the great lies we've embraced in the church is this, that all sin is the same. All sin is the same. How many of you have heard the saying before? All sin is the same one. All sin is the same. From murder to stealing chewing gum, all sin are the same. Well, even though that's a kind of popular saying, that is not found anywhere in the Bible. The Bible does not say this. The Bible actually doesn't teach us. The Bible actually teaches that sexual sin is a different kind of sin. Everywhere else we are told to resist temptation, but only as it pertains to sexual immorality, we are told to flee from sexual immorality, to flee from sexual sin. And the word for sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea, which is where we get the word pornography from. And it's a catch-all word that encompasses all kinds of sexual activity outside of the context, boundaries, and covenant of marriage. And so when we think of sex, specifically sexual immorality and pornea today, we aren't to just think, pardon the language, of penetrative sex. We are to think of all manners of sexual activity that occurs outside of the boundaries of marriage. Now it's with that as a backdrop that we look at the words of Jesus. Starting in verse 27 of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Notice that Jesus in his teaching does not ever contradict, nor denounce, nor dismiss the Ten Commandments. Instead, Jesus instructs us as to how this commandment is to, is ought to be lived out. He gets into the heart of the matter, the heart of the issue. Jesus doesn't just call us to duty. He calls us to understand and discover God's heart and intention behind God's instruction. And so, for example, when God says don't murder, he's saying treat others with care, with dignity, with respect. When God says don't covet, he's saying live with gratitude, with contentment, deriving joy and, and delight, seeing all of life as a gift. And when God says do not commit adultery, he is saying that our lives as believers are to be marked by fidelity, by a covenantal, faithful love. Now, Jesus knows his audience then, and he knows his audience here and now. And many of us, when we hear that commandment, when we hear that phrase, we instantly disconnect because we go, that is just not me. I do not struggle with adultery. Some of us might be single and we go, I'm single. I have not had sexual relations. I'm not even married. This adultery thing is not really talking about me. But Jesus will go on to say this, but I say to you, and whenever Jesus says, but I say to you, he's essentially saying, oi, listen up. He says in verse 28, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lastly has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now at first glance, this sounds like an impossible idea. We live, once again, emphasizing this, in a hyper sexualized culture. We, are, we face an onslaught of somewhat described as four to 5,000 advertisements coming at us each day. And many of them are designed to stoke your sexual desires, to, f to, to use that as a kind of impulse to feed a certain kind of consumerism. We are exposed to all of that, whether we want to or not, it comes at us. And so this call, this instruction seems almost impossible. And the temptation we have when we read this in light of culture is to go, Jesus doesn't really know what he's saying. Jesus is super duper out of touch with reality. And so we either dismiss the words of Jesus as not applicable, or we spiral into a whirlpool of guilt, shame, and condemnation because we can't live up to it. Now, first off, I'd just like to clarify, Jesus here is not talking about the appreciation of beauty. He's not. The Bible says that God created all things, everything, and he said that it was good. And the word good is the word tov. Can everybody say tov? 
tov. And the word good, this Hebrew word uh, that means good, tov, has kind of like an aesthetic meaning to it. It gives us the impression, connotation of something that's pleasing, that is delightful, that is beautiful, that is rightly ordered. It is tov. And so, you know, like a well-made meal is tov. Like breathing the crisp, fresh air on a morning hide is tov. The sunset, the sunrise, its beauty, its colors, its splendor is tov. And to look at a beautiful man or woman and find them beautiful or tov is not in and of itself sinful. Next thing, Jesus is not talking about the momentary flesh of sexual desire. This comes when you find a man or woman uh, beautiful and maybe they're wearing a certain kind of clothing or dressing a certain way that is appealing to you and in that moment as you see them, you're overwhelmed and overcome with sexual desire on a neurobiological level. Jesus is not talking about that momentary flesh of desire. It's not lust if you find someone attractive, it's not lust if you find someone good looking. It's not lust if you desire sex. It's not lust if you are sexually aroused without any conscious decision to do so. It's not lust if you experience temptation. All of that falls under the rubric of what it means to be human. Now, while we can't control temptation, we can certainly influence it by what we watch, by what we feed ourselves, by who we follow on Instagram, by what we immerse ourselves in, we can certainly influence temptation. Because we will always crave what we have cultivated an appetite for. The next kind of clarification when we're talking about lust is that Jesus here is talking about, as pertains to lust, when we gaze at a woman to get sexual gratification from her body. This is what Jesus is getting after. Now the word look in the English language has a kind of semantic range to it, doesn't it, right? When we talk about look, there's look as in glance, there's look as in stare, gaze, glare. And while the English language doesn't draw that kind of dif uh, difference, uh, the Greek does. And the Greek word here for look is the letter. It is to gaze, it is to linger, it's to stare. Then the next word uh, we see in the text is the word lustfully. Now this is a religious word, right, lust. Many of us don't use it in a modern culture. When was the last time you heard a person go, I have such a lust for Gong Cha now? Or like, like I have a lust for Mr. Coconut. No, nobody talks like that, right? Lust is really a religious word. And because it's only used in this kind of setting, particularly in sermons, we don't really, some of us don't really have a good grasp of the meaning of lust. Uh, here are a few definitions. Uh, first off, anyone who looks at a man or as a, as a woman with lustful intent, this is a, another translation of the verse in the ESV. Bruna says this, is every man who is looking at a woman in order to lust after her. Mackie, anyone who stares at a woman in order to fuel sexual desire for her. Willard, anyone who looks upon a woman for the purpose of lusting for her, using her visual presence as a means of savoring the fantasized act. And so we gather here when Jesus talks about look and lusting. The problem Jesus is addressing isn't so much sexual desire, beauty, or the male body or female body. He's addressing this problem and this impulse and this uh, uh, you know, bent towards turning people, specifically in this text, women, into objects and tools for our own pleasure and gratification. Jesus is dealing with a core problem in his day, and I believe in our day today as well, and that is the objectification of women. 
Notice next, Jesus uses really strong language after he says, whoever does this has committed adultery in their heart. To commit adultery in a heart is to try to make another person an object for your own consumption. It is to turn sex into something of consumption rather than communion. It is to turn it from something of union to using a tool, an object to meet my biological needs, my desire. And he says this, that this, folks, is not natural. It is a form of adultery. And so for married folks, it could mean that you are externally faithful, you have a fidelity to your husband or wife, but internally, you could be adulterous all at the same time. God sees our hearts. Now, in this text, Jesus is talking primarily to men. Now, we may argue here that it is not exclusive, but there's no way of looking past this that Jesus here is addressing specifically men. Jesus here challenges his male-dominated society and culture. He, in many instances in the gospel, regularly empower, believe, and affirm the dignity of women. Women in that day were historically seen as objects, as property of men in order to fulfill their needs, their pleasure, their desire. And in that day, women were often blamed for men's lust and men's sexual desire. Uh, Pharisees were at this saying that it is better to close one eye and walk into the wall than have a woman touch you. That was the kind of sentiments and view towards women. Women were the issue. Women were the cause of lust. And Jesus here is getting at that idea. He's saying, hey, the problem with lust is not so much out there, it's in here. It's not your external kind of surroundings or, or what is around you. It is in here. These things merely bring that dysfunction to the fore. What were you wearing is an American touring art exhibit and it depicts outfits uh, that were worn by anonymous subjects who were victims to sexual assault. The aim of the exhibit, which displays a selection of 40 outfits, is to challenge the idea that provocative clothing is the cause of sexual assault. And this is a stereotype uh, that perpetuates a kind of victim blaming. And the range of clothing includes baggy sweatshirts, security uniforms, traditional ethnic dressing, and none of which are provocative in nature. Now there's this thought that, that often goes, if she was just not wearing that outfit, I would not have lusted after her. And I'd like to put it to you again that the issue is not out there, it's in here. This is what Jesus is getting it, getting at. Adultery in the heart. Hear me, folks. When we give ourselves over to lust, we reduce people who are the image of God into images for use for our pleasure, for self-gratification. Lust ultimately degrades, denigrates, dehumanizes the other. In this respect, people aren't people. They are merely tools and objects for our use. Now, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, Paul is addressing a church that was affluent, that was progressive. Uh, at the same time, it was a church that had many cultural influences. There was a whole lot of stuff going around the city, and you had a church that was trying to live out a biblically faithful ethic, yet at the same time had all these external cultures and influences influencing the church. And so it was kind of a blended kind of ethic, right? They were like trying to be biblically faithful, yet at the same time there was like a lot of cultural norms going around in the church. First off, uh, is this line that says, I have the right to do 
anything. Notice in the text, it is in quotes. This was something that was said to Paul or was a popular saying in the church at that time. The Corinthians were essentially saying this to Paul. I have the right to do what I want with my body. I have the right to do this. The laws of the land permit me to do so. God is love, he's accepting, I can be me, I can do me. And Paul responded, he said, you say this, but not everything is beneficial. Again, there's an quote, I'd write do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Paul is saying that if you were to give in to these desires, impulses, and wants outside of God's kingdom, outside of God's way, they have this potential to enslave you, to trap you, to bound you. Now, so many studies have revealed the addictive nature of pornography. Very Rune uh, from Cambridge, who studies addictive behavior, uh, said that when she was comparing the brain scans of drug addicts and people who had sexual compulsivity due to pornography, she noticed that the scans were exactly the same because addiction is addiction. We have, many of you know, we have a reward pathway in our brain that pumps pleasure chemicals to us, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, they're released. And the thing, that, the way it works is that when we introduce drugs or any kind of addictive behavior, it triggers this pathway to the point where the things that used to stimulate us no longer do the same or has the same effect. And so it's safe to say that the further the addiction continues, the more we need to expose ourselves to this addiction. And over time, the part of the brain becomes altered, changed and rewired, and we find ourselves bound and enslaved. And if you know some basic psychology, you know that the pain center of the brain and the pleasure center of the brain are very closely linked. And there's all sorts of studies that show that people who are addicted to pornography, over time, they'll begin to desire more violent kinds of pornography. And over time, that leads to some people engaging in sexual violence and assault uh, in society. That is our culture. That's our world. You with me, folks? Thank you. Verse 13. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Again, this is the actual saying going around in the church. Now, the social world of the Corinthians was vastly different from ours. Prostitution then was not only legal, it was accepted as a social convention. Right, you could hang out and say, like, what do you want to do today? Let's go visit a prostitute. That was the kind of world uh, that is ancient Corinth. And so sexual relations then with both harlots and boys were largely seen as acceptable. Uh, Richard Hayes in his commentary will write that the Corinthian men who went to prostitutes were not asserting some new unheard of freedom. They were merely insisting on their right to continue participating in a pleasurable activity that was entirely normal within their own culture. Now, many ancient Greeks and Romans would view the body as something that was lesser to what they would deem as the soul and the spirit. And this is influenced by Plato, a philosopher, who viewed the body as a kind of husk. He would describe it as a prison house of the soul. The body is something that is lesser, and the soul is where the, uh, a person's true essence result, re- resided. And so kind of what followed that thought is that whatever you did with your body is okay. I can do whatever I want with my body because it doesn't even matter. It's not the real me. And Paul would say this in response to that popular thought of the day. You say, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies, hear this, bodies, not souls, not some other thing. Your bodies are members of Christ himself. 
Verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. It's an interesting phrase that Paul uses. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. According to Jewish theology, the temple is the place where heaven and earth overlapped. The temples were often designed to mirror or to image God's throne room in heaven. The temple was to be the place where God would rule and reign over Israel. In Exodus, Moses receives uh, instruction and builds a tabernacle according to uh, the exact standards of heaven. And it's estimated that today, the tabernacle of Moses will be worth somewhere around $16 billion in today's economy. And the Bible tells us that Moses would bless that structure, that tabernacle, and God's presence would fill that tabernacle and he would dwell in that tabernacle. Fast forward approximately 500 years, we come to Solomon's temple. It's a seven-year construction that is estimated to be worth some $60 billion in today's economy, just decked with jewels and fine metals and those, uh, as an architectural marvel. And then the Bible tells us that Solomon blesses it, and the same thing happens. God's presence fills the temple, and he dwells in that structure. But there's more to the story, right? Paul would tell the church in Corinth that your bodies are now temples of the Holy Spirit. Just like a $16 billion tabernacle, just like a $60 billion temple, Jesus has died to get you ready and now you are set apart, sanctified to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. God's presence dwells within you. You are literally the locus point where heaven and earth invade. You are the place where God's rule, reign and presence is to be established in your bodies. That's why Paul would say, honor God with your bodies because you are far, you're worth far more than you think you are. Your body is not just this useless husk. There's something that Jesus has paid for a price for and he has attributed worth to you and he says that your body is now where my spirit resides and dwells. This is my intention for you. So we have to honor God with our bodies, not just with our mouth, our mind or our theology, but with what we do with our bodies. And by extension, we are to honor the bodies of each other. Do not use each other as tools of objectification, as images for pleasure, but to see the worth and value that God has attributed to each and every person. These are images of God. Pope John Paul II will talk about, will say this in response to pornography. He says this, there is no dignity when the human dimension is eliminated from the person. In short, the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of the person, but that it shows far too little. It shows far too little. It does not show that God has attributed surpassing worth and value. Humanity to human beings. Now, we had a seminar some time ago where we talked about marriage and we did this Q&A session where a bunch of people sent in their questions uh, regards to marriage and honestly, a lot of it were like, sex-related. And a lot of questions uh, revolved around uh, what sort of sexual acts were permitted in the context of marriage. What can I do? 
what can I not do? I'd like to put it to you that that isn't the question that we ought to really be asking. The question we ought to be asking is that how can I communicate love, honor, and value to the image of God that is before me? And the other question we have to ask is this. Are our sexual appetites, our desires, formed by culture or, or pornography, or is it formed by a love and desire to honor? Paul would say this in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All the sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Paul wants us that this kind of sin is different. It has the potential to do damage to a person, to a body, be it through addiction. It has a potential to deform and destroy your body. And that's why Jesus said this further in Matthew chapter 5. Are you with me, folks? Bring this to a landing semi soon. He says this in verse 29 If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, there's a lot of confusion surrounding this text, but I'd just like to clarify off the bat that Jesus here isn't talking about self mutilation. He isn't, right? He isn't. And if he was, he obviously missed the most important body part to cut off. You all laughed. The first service did not laugh at all. They looked at me and they were like, inappropriate. Inappropriate. Now, a commentary writes this, that it's better to go limping to heaven than leaping into hell. Jesus says it's not for you know, you to self-mutilate, but he says it's a kind of hyperbole, it's like a shock effect. What he is essentially saying is this, you need to deal drastically with lust. You need to take it on. You need to be intentional. And if you do not take it head on, you're not serious with this, you will stumble. We ought not to think of it as a small problem, shrug it off, or think our willpower is strong enough to accomplish this, or to chalk it off as a little boy's problem. We have to take it seriously. Jesus would use this this phrase over and over again, it's better for you to do this than to end up in hell. And we think of hell as this like future, kind of like eternal reality that is like far away from the here and now. But Jesus' choice of words for hell in this particular text is very interesting. He uses the word Gehenna, which is an actual place in that day. It was the city's trash dump outside of the walls of the city that was burning 24-7, consuming trash. And Jesus is saying this, it's better for you to deal drastically with lust than to end up there, to be outside the city, to be burning 24-7. It's better for you to do this. And haven't we seen that hell is not just a future kind of eternal reality, but hell can be a very felt experience in the here and now. Whether it be a form of addiction, or for some, before, because of an overconsumption of pornography, the inability to be sexually aroused by one's spouse. It could be the death of intimacy that comes with crippling guilt, shame, or worse, the death of a marriage, or the birth of an affair. And haven't we seen this played out? in our world today. Now, hear me in saying this, folks. The impulse to look, to lust, is a habit of the mind. It is not the law of gravity. You do not have to be enslaved to this. This is not your life story. It doesn't have to be. We can, through discipleship to Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, become as Jesus is, kind, merciful teacher who did not look upon the other with lust, but saw value, worth, and dignity in the other. We can be such a people. 
Now, what does it mean for us to live into this? First off, it could mean that you don't watch certain movies and TV shows that everyone else is watching. It could mean that you don't have certain apps on your phones. It could mean that you don't use the internet past a certain time. It could mean that you meet with a group of faithful brothers or sisters to practice accountability, confession. It could mean that today you take a step to confess to someone, to repent, to ask for help. But whatever it is, it will cost you. It will cost you. Now, I would like to close off with talking about a biblical vision ethic of sex. It's with this backdrop of God and Jesus calling us to resist objectification, for us to discover how he has made our bodies, not just as husks, but as carriers of his presence and his glory, is to know that we ought to treat each other with that same worth and dignity that we are to think about sex and sexuality. We are to consider what does it mean to follow Jesus well with our sexuality. Now, for far too long, the church has reduced the message on sex to simply don't masturbate, don't sleep around, uh, don't make out, don't sleep together before you get married. But the problem, folks, is that the scripture does not start with a negative command about, about sex. It does not start with don't. Instead, it starts off with a positive command, be fruitful and multiply. One of the first few things we read about Adam and Eve is that they were naked and unashamed, pure, unadulterated joy, pleasure between a man and woman locked into relationship for life. That is what God created and ordained. I want you to notice this, that we can gather through the Genesis account that God's masterpiece, his workmanship, his design was made for sexual intimacy. And this was before the fall. One commentator would say that we were sexual before we were sinful. Just sit in that for a moment. We were sexual before we were sinful. Sex is not some kind of evil curse that we have to curb and deny. It's a good gift that we can enjoy as long as it is in the right context. Contrary to a view that regards all sex as dirty and an opposing view that views sex as a kind of biological need is to be thought of as neutral, as, this, as nothing, there's no significance to it, Jesus calls us to see sex as very good and to see sex not just as a thing primarily for self-fulfillment, to fulfill a biological desire, but something that can lead us closer to Christ and his kingdom. And with that, you know, I'd like to just land on four visions we have to capture surrounding sex. First off, we are to have a covenantal vision of sex. A covenantal vision of sex. Sex is covenant renewing. It is sacred because sex in of, of itself constitutes a kind of covenant renewing. The original purpose of sex is to become one flesh. And this means a complete, perfect union. Sex creates deep intimacy, oneness between, uh, and communion between two people. I like to say this, that though covenant is necessary for sex, sex is also necessary for covenant. The covenant will grow stale unless we continually re revisit and reenact it. And that's why we do communion in the church. We, take, we partake in the, the Lord's Supper in His body, in His blood. As a kind of reenactment, and a reminder of the sacred vows of the covenant we've made to the Lord. It's covenant renewing. The next vision we have to capture as pertains to sex is this. We have to have a formational vision of sex. Sexuality rightly lived out is formational. 
sexuality wrongly lived out is deformational. The Christian vision of sex isn't self-gratifying, it's self-giving. Now, if you're single, saying no to something you want in the moment has the capacity to produce deep growth within you. You learn self-control, respect, learning to prefer others. Saying no to sex outside marriage develops a character and it leads us closer to Christ's, idea, Christ's vision of us living in a sacrificial love. And sex in marriage is also formational. It can be self-giving too. It means preferring a partner, honoring them, celebrating them, not depriving them. We can have a formational vision of sex. The next thing we are to have is this. It's a missional vision of sex. Missional vision of sex. Now, in Jesus' day, it's a day marked by hedonism. Yet the people of God live in a starkly opposed way to the culture of that day. This is from a historical account. It says this, that they marry as do others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. Here's a people who live in such stark contrast to the culture of the world. Now, what does it mean for you in your season of life to live sexually faithful? It could be celibacy for some. It could be restraint for the unmarried. In marriage, it could mean faithfully showing up and offering yourself to each other in self-giving love, not holding back, not holding out a missional vision of sex. And the last vision, this is the interesting one, is this, an eschatological vision of sex. Eschatological vision of sex. Now sex, I'd like to put it to you, points beyond itself to a greater story. To a greater story. Sex points beyond the physical longings to a deep longing within the soul, the human soul, to be a part of, to, to be immersed in something greater outside of ourselves. C.S. Lewis famously said this, that if I find within myself a longing that cannot be satisfied by anything I find in this world, it seems logical to conclude that I was not made for this world. In a way, our sexual desire, raging, insatiable at times, mirrors our soul's deep longing for God and his kingdom. Now, it may be very weird to think about it that way, right? Spirituality and sexuality. But Ephesians 5, Paul would say this, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Marriage, sexual desire, sex, are all earthly parallels given by God to tutor his people, their hearts and minds, to long for eternity. Now, I've been like immersed in books on like faith and sex and all that kind of stuff. Like, oh my gosh, I need a detox. Um, <laughs> now, I, I, I like to share a quote that I read like literally last night. I, just, I got quite offended uh, at, at this book. And so this is not my quote. This, everybody say this is not Andre's words. Not Andre's words, right? So I'm just sharing my, my offense. Um, I, I, I was just reading this book on, on sex and capturing a biblical ethic and vision for sex. And the author said, said this, heaven's joys and pleasures would be far greater than the orgasm. And then he said this, we wouldn't need orgasms in heaven because heaven would be like one endless orgasm. <laughs> and I read that and I was like, 
what trash is this? Like, what is this? Like, is this even kosher? Like, how do you do it? And it's like, should somebody write a song on this? I don't know, like, like. No, it's, it's honestly offensive, laughable, and outrageous language. But in a way, there's more truth to this than we realize. Isn't that what scripture promises? That in his presence is fullness of joy and his right hand pleasures evermore. I'm not saying that when we enter into eternity, we enter into a kind of sexual ecstasy. But I'm saying that we enter into a fulfillment into a joy and a delight that far eclipses any kind of pleasures that we experience here on earth, where our soul communes in perfect union with the one whom we love. And that, that joy, that delight, that ecstasy far eclipses anything that we experience in the here and now. And Jesus' vision for our life is that we will not yield to temporal lustful pleasures, but we will give our hearts, our minds towards that which is good, beautiful, pure, true, and eternal. First John says this, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. These desires, they will pass away one day, but God, his kingdom, life with him is forever. So I want to close off with a few questions as, as we land. Took a bit of time, but are we good? few questions for you to reflect on. You can take a picture. First off, is this, how has my views on sex been informed by the world I'm living in? How has it been informed? My appetite, what I think is normal, what I desire, be in X, be in frequency. What? How have I been shaped by the culture I'm living in? Second is this, how do I honor my body? How do I honor the bodies of others? Third, how can I reject in my daily life worldly scripts, lies, and disordered appetites that can entrench me and lead my soul into ruin? Next, how can I work towards wholeness, healing, integrity, and love in this area of my life? Last thing is this, how do I love God well with my body and with my sexuality? Now, I've heard it said that there are two ways of being crazy in the world. It's either we live into the foolishness of the gospel or the nonsense values of the world. There are no two ways about it, folks. It's either we are formed by a hyper-sexualized culture or we are formed into the image of Jesus through his way. And the claim we are making today as a church is that Jesus' ethic on sex, how he has called us to live, in contrast to our culture, our world, what is deemed as palatable and for some a right, we're saying that Jesus' vision, his way is better. It is the way to life everlasting. Amen. Can we stand? Thank you for trekking along, folks. Now, recently I've been uh, just reacquainted and taken to the Japanese art form Kintsugi. Kintsugi, and uh, many of us are familiar with this, and I have a picture up. Coincidentally, this is the design of my wedding cake. Uh, I love Kintsugi, and uh, Kintsugi has this idea of taking something which is broken and restoring it, restoring it. And in, in our culture, in our world today, something that's broken is deemed as worthless, as something to be chucked aside. But practitioners of kintsugi, uh, they hold to things, you know, things don't have to lose their value. It's not buying to a philosophy of replacement, but that of all reverence and restoration. 
And now these bows are literally one of a kind. They're unique because through an artist's great care and through the use of costly materials, they've been restored, not to that of original value, but they're restored to something that's worth a far higher price because they've been restored at such great cost. Kintsugi. I love this because I think of my own life and I think my own life, you know, I, I look like this bow. My middle name is Kintsugi, Andre Kintsugi, done. Because I, I, I have been broken, damaged, and Christ through his great love, mercy, and kindness has redeemed and restored me at such great cost. And you may not know it, but there are people on the right and left now that are these bows. They've been broken, sexually broken, and God in his grace and mercy has restored them. And why am I saying this? Because you may be here today and you're just riddled with shame, guilt, even as I talked about these words. And, and you, you may be thinking about stuff you've done in the past or how you are in the here and now, in the present. And you go, man, that, that is just too much. I'm so broken. Is there even hope for me? I'd like to say to you today that the same way Christ has redeemed and restored me and the people on the right and left and all through scriptures we read of people who have been sexually promiscuous and Christ redeems them, restores them. And the witness of the gospel is this, that when we come to Jesus in humility, seeking his grace, we are not met with condemnation but we are met with redemption. And Christ says to you today that he is able to redeem, make you whole, set you free, that he can and he's the only one who can make you into a pure and spotless bride. And maybe you've come to the end of yourself through willpower alone. You cannot accomplish this, folks. You need the grace, mercy of Jesus, the power of His Spirit. And so I'd like to pray for all of us today in response to the words of Jesus. I invite you to close your eyes now as we respond. If that is you, you know, you battle with sexual brokenness. You're reminded even this day of stuff you've done in the past and stuff that you feel deeply shameful, guilty for. Jesus wants to redeem you and restore you. You may be thinking of how you've engaged in certain acts. It could be even this week, you've given yourself to lust, to carnal fleshly desires. Jesus wants to cleanse you with his word, with his blood, and make you whole, pure again. So with your hands stretched out before you, let's pray. Jesus, we ask, for your blood that speaks a better word, for your blood that's sufficient, for your blood that is enough, for your blood that cleanses us, makes us holy, pure, and blameless. We rely today not on our own strength or to take a kind of virtue in our shame and guilt, but we choose to lean upon your cross, your finished work, your blood poured out for us. Jesus, we ask for where our eyes have sought to objectify the other for our eyes have not been faithful God we pray in your mercy bring us back to you we make a covenant with our eyes today even as Job did to live faithfully to view each other through your lens of God images of God not images for our own pleasure tether us back to you this day we ask for your grace in your name we pray all of God's people say Amen let's go back to worship together